Hi there, it's episode 167, and today we're talking about kids and love languages. You are listening to the Simple Families Podcast, a Q&A style show that brings you solutions for living well with family. Here's your host, Danae Barahona. Hi there, it's Danae. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode 167 of the Simple Families Podcast. And today I have a chat with Diane Dubrovner, who is the deputy editor of Parents Magazine. And Diane and I are talking a little bit about the changes on the roller coaster that has been parenting for the past few decades. Parents Magazine has been around since 1924, which really surprised me to think about how differently the way that we've consumed media, particularly as it pertains to parenting, has changed over the years. And we're also talking about the love languages and how they pertain to children. Parents recently ran a feature article on this that Diane worked on, and I think it's an interesting topic to explore, so I look forward to sharing it with you. Before we get any further into today's episode, I'm going to bring you a quick word from our sponsor. Today's sponsor is Preptish, and if you've been listening to the podcast, you'll know that Preptish has been sponsoring the Simple Families podcast for quite some time, and I'm hoping that they'll stick around because I love working with companies that I actually use and appreciate, and Preptish is one of those. So what is Preptish? Preptish is a meal planning service, and I had my doubts about whether I would need something like this. I mean, there's no shortage of online recipes out there, but I found that it was immensely useful to me right away. So the difference between going out onto Pinterest and finding some recipes versus using this meal planning service is that it's already curated for you. So you get the list each week of the recipes that you're going to be making And at the beginning of the list is the ingredients. So you go out, buy your ingredients. You might order them if you do online grocery delivery. And then you have a prep day where you spend an hour or two prepping the dishes for the week. And once you've done all the prepping, all the chopping, all the pre-cooking that you can do, on dish day, it really just takes 10 or 15 minutes to assemble an amazing home-cooked meal. If your kids have a witching hour like mine, this is an amazing option. So I encourage you to try it. Go to preptish.com forward slash families and you'll get two weeks free. Again, that's preptish.com forward slash families. So what's going on on Simple Families right now? So I just launched a new round of the Mental Unload, which is underway now, and it's an amazing group. I feel like it gets better every time. And I'm getting ready to launch the Masterclass at the end of August. So keep your ears open and listening for that. That launch is going to come at the end of August as enrollment, and then the course itself is going to start at the beginning of September, just after Labor Day here in the U.S. And I am really happy to be welcoming a new group in for that this fall. I'm also looking forward to recording some really cool episodes. I have an interview coming up with Liz Frazier, who is the author of Beyond Piggy Banks and Lemonade Stands. And Liz and I are talking about how to teach children about finance and managing money, a topic that is pretty much brand new to me. And I'm also getting ready to record an episode with the CEO of Pact, which is an organic apparel company. I'm hoping to learn a little bit more about sustainable fashion and some of the new initiatives in that area, especially as it pertains to kids. It's hard to believe that it's August already, and I will say that going to doing two episodes a month has really lightened my mental load a lot, but I'm also kind of missing it, and I feel like I've been MIA, so I'm looking forward to rejoining you weekly starting in September. 
Now, if you've been missing the podcast, make sure that you're following along on Instagram, simple underscore families. I'm trying to do something new where each week I do a little mini course, which I put up in my stories highlights. Last week, I did one on whining 101, how to manage whining and kids. And this week, I'm talking about black or white thinking and why it's important to understand how kids' brains work a little bit differently than ours. So if you are on Instagram, be sure to follow and tune in over there to get little bits and pieces of those in between the podcast episodes. All right, so let's get back to today's episode at hand, which is my chat with Diane DeBrovner, the deputy editor of Parents Magazine. So Diane's been at the magazine for over 20 years, and she has so much insight. She's seen the pendulum swing back and forth and probably back and forth again when it comes to parenting ideas and parenting theories. And one of the topics that she brought to me and was especially interested in talking about was applying the love languages to children. And this is something that she recently covered in an article for the magazine and I really enjoyed picking her brain on this topic, particularly as it pertains to gifting as a love language, because I kind of have my doubts about whether gifting is really a true love language, but she has me partially convinced. So as always, if you want the links to the things that we're talking about today, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 167, and you can leave questions and comments for me there. I look forward to hearing from you. So without further ado, here's today's episode. Hi, Diane. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Danae. So nice to be with you. It's good to chat. So tell me a little bit about yourself personally, professionally. Uh, my name is Diane DeBrovner. I am the deputy editor of Parents Magazine, and I've actually been here for many, many years. I um, started out as a senior editor, and then I was the health and psychology editor, and I've been the deputy editor for many years. And I oversee our coverage of articles related to children's health and development and behavior and relationships and books and a bunch of other things. Um, and I am the mother of two daughters who are now 14 and 25, but I very clearly remember when they were very young and I was a young mother myself. And so I am absolutely in the mindset of your audience and our audience. And it's, it's been um, a real privilege to be at parents all this time and see how things have changed and stayed the same at the same time. Right. So your kids pretty much grew up with the magazine. They were was your first daughter was born shortly before you started working there. She was. She was eighteen months old when I started working at Parents, uh-huh. and then my daughters are eleven years apart. And so when I I was divorced and I got remarried. And when I had um, a second baby, it was really great for my career. There aren't a lot of people who can say that. So um, I threw myself back into the content in a very, in a very hands-on way. How long has Parents been around? Parents was founded in 1926, believe it or not. Oh my goodness. Um, I had no idea. Wow. We celebrated our 90th anniversary a few years ago and it we used to, there used to be a lot of other parenthood magazines and there really are not now. And, um, our challenge has been to continue to be authoritative and really be on top of the latest, um, medical advice and research that relates to raising children, but also look at what's happening in our culture and make sure that the advice that we're giving and, and the way that we're reflecting parenthood back to our audience, um, is authentic and makes, and makes sense for 2019. 
Wow, it's a huge accomplishment to have lasted 90 years. And you're right, a lot of the parenting magazines that I knew of just even a few years ago really aren't around anymore. So parents has prevailed. Parents are getting information from all different places, from each other online, from um, podcasts like yours, from books. And so I think that at the magazine, we really see our job as, as helping parents one of our jobs is to help parents have a toolkit of resources that um, are helpful to them in doing their job. And and your job as a parent keeps changing as your child gets older, right? Just when you think that you've got it down, when your kid is a baby, then she becomes a toddler and you have to come up with some new strategies. And so every article that we run, and I'm sure every podcast that you run, isn't necessarily going to ring true to every single parent but those that do can be incredibly helpful. And so we just want to give moms and dads all the resources that we can. Right. And I totally agree with that. I've always been a friend of, or a fan slash also a friend, I guess, um, of parents and the content that you have. And I think that it's a nice, succinct way to present new topics to parents. And I imagine that you've probably seen the pendulum swing back and forth on different types of parenting styles and whatnot over the years. I think certainly on the on the topic of overparenting, which is a, a topic that I know is cl- is is near and dear to your heart, I have seen the pendulum come and go. <laughs> so that's that's certainly one area where um, parents felt that they were doing the right thing by being really involved and protecting their kids from dangers. And I think there's been a a a, a profound realization that doing too much for our kids is doing a disservice to them. And so we're helping parents find the right balance. Right. And I think that sometimes it can seem like these trends come and go in parenting, but I actually think that some of the big shifts have been, I mean, if you think about like back in, I think it was maybe the thirties or forties when doctors were saying you shouldn't hold your baby too much, you shouldn't touch them too much. Um, and that that was going to spoil them. There was a lot of, a lot of that type of chatter going on back in the thirties and forties. And then once research around child development really started to come out, which wasn't really until closer to the 50s, 60s, 70s, and now obviously we constantly have new research coming out. It's not necessarily that the pendulum has been swinging back and forth, back and forth. It's more of we're just getting more information all the time and we're learning how humans grow and develop all the time. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. I think you're right. And certainly we have so much information and I think that the the tendency to overparent and be nervous about our kids being in danger is because we have access to so much of that medical research and 24/7 news and it, the world is a scary place and it's an it's an understandable instinct that parents want to protect their kids. It's not a bad thing. It's coming from a place of love. Yes, the better safe than sorry is an, is an expression that I hear a lot from parents. And I, I agree with it on some occasions and then others, I feel like it sometimes can hurt us more than help us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations so, on your book because oh, thank your book, you. your, your so book articulates a lot of this same philosophy and I, I, I found it incredibly helpful and enjoyable and, and it makes a tremendous amount of sense. So congratulations on that. <laughs> oh, thank you. It has been such a fun journey and I've loved hearing the feedback from all the readers. So I, I do appreciate that. 
So the article that I want to talk about today, Diane, is about the love languages. And I know you all had recently published an article on the love languages, a feature article, and you talk about applying the love languages to children, which isn't something that I necessarily think of. Because when I think about the love languages, I think about it more in a partner or a marriage sense. So I'm not really familiar with the thinking about the love languages in terms of our children. So I'd love to hear just a little bit about, for anyone that might not be familiar with the love languages, what they are, where they came from. The Five Love Languages is a book that was written by Dr. Gary Chapman actually more than 25 years ago. And I had always heard about them. And I, and I think a lot of people have a vague sense of what they are, but I actually wasn't incredibly familiar with them. And we decided to revisit the topic because one of our regular writers stumbled upon the book when she was having a hard time making sense of her own child's behavior. And the book, uh, the original book and the subsequent book, which is called um, The Five Love Languages for Children, talks about the fact that there are five different ways that everybody expresses love and that we all like all of them, but that every person has one way that is particularly meaningful to him or her. And that if you can identify which of those love languages um, is your child's preferred one, then you're in a better position to let your child really appreciate how you feel. And it's also a way to um, anticipate any possible behavior problems that could be related to the fact that your child is not feeling as loved in the way that she would like to be. So it's it was an aha moment for Gail Cornwall, who wrote this story for us. And once we dug into it, it was really quite interesting. And I think it doesn't necessarily ring true for every parent, but for, for many, it can, it can be um, quite telling. Yeah. And I, when I think about the five love languages, I think that some parents might default to thinking like, of course, my kid knows that I love them. Like, of course I love my kid. But I think one of the pieces of this that's really important to consider is how your child can feel connection to you. Because in this busy, chaotic world, I think that's one of the things that's lacking so often is that our kids get shuffled from one place to the next and they don't actually slow down and connect with us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And certainly if you are making an effort to express your love in the way that you have discovered is most significant to your child, your child will be really um, not just appreciative, but really feel like you get him, you know, that you understand where he's coming from. And that that's a really powerful feeling for kids. Right. Because even though, of course, we love our kids, it might they might need to hear it and to feel it in ways that aren't necessarily as natural to us. Yeah. I mean, your kid isn't obviously going to say like, oh, my, my mother understands my love language. <laughs> right. Thank you so much for, for right. expressing but, your but love that little... way. But, but right. it, wordlessly, I think that they will experience the benefit of it. Yeah, they're going to be more calm. They're going to feel more connected. And um, just the, I feel like the rhythm and general feeling of your days may flow a little bit more smoothly. I hope so. So, what do you think the benefits of understanding your kids' love language is? 
one of the things to say from the beginning, what, what distinguishes children's expression of the love language versus adults is that kids tend to show their love for us in the same way that they want to be loved. So if they are uh, a physical, if, if physical touch is their primary love language, they are going to be very hands-on with their parents. Um, they not only will be hugging them, but they might be pulling your hair and tugging on your pant leg and wanting to sit in your lap. And some of that might seem a little bit annoying to some parents, that it's not that they're just snuggling under a blanket, but they're just being very um, seemingly needy in a physical way. And I think once you can appreciate the fact that they're doing that because they just are a physically oriented child, then we can perceive their behavior in a more positive way and receive it um, more openly and then turn around and find ways to be physically affectionate with our child um, that are surprising and, and fun and touching for our child. So that brings us to the first yeah, the first love language, which is touch. And I think this is one that is going to resonate with so, so many people who have young children, because I feel like young children tend to touch a lot. They absolutely do. And I think, I I think with very young children, it may seem like they, they all want to touch. I mean, we, if we go through the different love languages, some of them have to relate to um, kids who want to hear the words, I love you. And it, they want um, you to do certain things for them. And obviously when you have a very young child who can't talk yet, touch is really um, all, all babies' primary love language. But um, there are kids who just um, want to be close to you all the time. And um, I think that holding their hand and rubbing their back and um, encouraging them to sit in your lap, that you can see, I, there are certain children in particular that I think that you'll see their level of calm increase and that they'll just um, sort of melt into you in a way, right. in a way that's very telling. There are a lot of kids who need touch and ask for it in less than gentle and less than pleasant ways. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about recently my kids were at a yoga class and they were in different parts of the room and they were doing whatever the yoga move was, downward facing dog or whatever it was. And all of a sudden my daughter just stopped what she was doing, ran over and smacked my son on the head. <sighs> And then just ran back to her spot. And it seemed like this really random, non-aggressive, yet also not entirely appropriate behavior. But it was almost like, hey, brother, like I see you over there. Like I just wanted to say hi. <laughs> but it's just, it, 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 it's, I laugh a little bit because it's my son and he survived and he was fine with it. Um, but just because it, it was sort of the sign that she sometimes uses her body in ways that sure, I don't love it, but also she's three and she's still learning how to communicate and she's still learning how to express herself. And she probably wouldn't have done that with another kid in the class, right? But I think that kids feel comfortable being themselves and being, you know, uninhibited with their parents. And and the nice thing is that they feel that way with their siblings often too, and it has pros and cons. But I think that she knows that he's she feels like he's going to understand her and what, what her motivation was, which is, which is nice. 
And she might have been in the back of the classroom feeling less connected Mm -hmm. and was just looking for that little touch point quite literally touch point, slap point, whatever you want to call it. And, and she found it and then she went back to her space and she was just fine. Um, so, and I think, and I see that in my kids towards me too, that sometimes they're like hanging on my leg or climbing on my shoulders. Um, and in my personal space in ways that is, like you said, it gets a little bit annoying and a little bit invasive, but it's not that they're doing it to annoy us, right? It's doing, they're doing it to elicit attention and touch from mm-hmm, us. Mm-hmm. And and when you're talking about the slapping, I think as kids get older, um, and I guess younger kids too, that, that certain kids sort of play wrestling and jostling and that sort of what seems like not affectionate touching meets the same need for certain kids too. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So the next love language is gifts. What do you think about the love language of gifts? Well, I know how you feel about gifts, <laughs> <laughs> right? That's why I asked you first. <laughs> well, what I thought was interesting about this love language is that it's not just that kids want constant presence and they're very needy and they want more stuff all the time, but that they they really see any sort of gift as being an um an embodiment, a reflection of how you feel about them so that they really see it as, as, as something that you're doing because you love them. Um, and the benefit is that it doesn't have to be a 200 piece Lego set. It could be a really beautiful stone that you picked up on a walk, or it could be a swan or a gummy swan that you made out of paper or anything that you give to your child that is a way of saying, you know what, I was thinking about you today and this, and I wanted you to have this because I love you and I thought it would be special to you. So these are kids who take great um, pleasure in seeing how an actual gift might be wrapped. Um, They might always remember who gave what gift to them. And they often have a hard time throwing things away because everything that they received as a gift is special to them. Yeah. You know, I see a little bit of that in my daughter. She loves to give gifts Mm -hmm. and she doesn't really, because she's only three, she doesn't really give gifts very often, but she does make up her own gifts. And she often will take magnetile squares and make a cube and then put like little toys inside of it. (laughs) And then have me wrap it up with one of her scarves and then she carried and that's the wrapping paper. Yeah. Um, so she, but it's, it's meaningful to her to be presenting something to someone yes. and to, to, to be, um, showing someone else that they're, th- that she's thinking about. And she that. probably watches yeah. your reaction very closely and wants to make sure that you appreciate it just as much as she does. Right. Yes. Yes, for sure. So I guess when you're thinking about the love language of gifts for kids, I think this can be a slippery slope. So what, I mean, all kids like to get gifts. So who are the kids that have gifts as their love language? Like what kids need gifts to feel loved? That's a tricky question. I actually think that this is probably the least common love language. And it's surprising because all kids like gifts, but I don't, I actually think that most kids truly crave love in other ways <laughs> more than gifts, which is a good thing. Um, I think that there may just be certain kids who like concrete 
manifestations of things, right? Like they like objects and they like being able to look at something and it make an actual thing reminds them of a person. Um, and I don't know. I don't really know what the psychological ramifications I are. I don't know either. Are. And I just, I wonder if it can be a, a result of the way that kids were raised. If they, if we're given a lot of gifts from the very beginning and they came to expect that, if that can be part of it. I don't know. I'm kind of a skeptic in general about gifts as a love language. And I know there's a lot of people out there who say like, oh, gifts are my love language. That's how I show my love. Um, But I just, I feel like sometimes, and now this isn't always, but sometimes gifts as a love language can be kind of a cop-out because, maybe I shouldn't say cop-out, but um, it can be a way of expressing your love when you're not comfortable with the other ways, when you're not comfortable saying it or physically showing it, um, it's a little bit more of a distant sort of at arm's length way of showing love. Do you, do you I abso- follow what I I'm absolutely saying at all? do. I mean, I think that there are certainly plenty of people, maybe there are grandparents who feel more comfortable showering their grandchildren with lots of gifts rather than saying, um, let's spend the day together and do a really fun activity that we'll both remember forever. <laughs> you know, that the the presence instead of the present, as as I know you like to talk about. Um, so it it's certainly easier to hand somebody a necklace than to just tell them how you feel about them. It's you know it's harder for some people than others. Um, on the giving end. And certainly if kids have been showered with lots of gifts from a young age, they come to expect it. I think that that is understandable, whether that's really their love language, I don't know, but um, kids like routine. And if their routine in their life is that the people who were important to them always gave them lots of gifts, that that's how they think the world works. And if it changes, they think something's wrong. Yeah. And I, I think that I, well, I, first of all, I love the examples that you all gave, like the, the stone or the wildflower on their pillow or little, mm-hmm. just natural tokens, more, I would say tokens right. of your love rather than toys per se. Um, because I think that those things are not necessarily being given to light a kid up and to just, you know, cause this like extreme elation and focus on the item, the item, the focus is more on the act itself and on the person who gave it rather than on the gift itself. It's not, it's not such a fabulous gift that the kid completely forgets where it came from or the intent behind it. And, and the messages when I saw this little dandelion today, it was so bright and cheerful. It made me think of you and you're so bright and cheerful and I wanted you to have it. So I think that, you know, the sort of the message of, I was thinking about you and I thought this would make you happy and make you smile is more important than the actual object. Yes. And I think that our kids appreciate those type of gifts more than we realize. They want, they want to think that we're thinking about them when we're not together. That's one of the best things we could tell them. Right. Because I think that when we give gifts, it's, we, we don't always give them with connection. And that example that you just gave with the dandelion, that is giving a gift and giving connection at the same time, because you're talking, you're showing your feelings through the gift rather than just handing over this wrapped gift and the kid runs away with it. 
my parents just celebrated a very big anniversary and they really don't need any gift at all. They have everything that they need at this point in their life. And I was sort of feeling like I should get them a gift. It was a big anniversary. And then I said, you know what, I'm going to really write them a beautiful letter and tell them all the reasons why I love them and what a great uh, influence they've been on me and what their marriage has meant to me in my life. And um, this sort of overlaps with the love language of um, words of affirmation and sort of tell some, telling someone how you love them. But I had an instinct that that would mean the most to my parents. And I was absolutely right. It really was um, received in the spirit that I gave it. And so that was really a, um, a nice moment for us recently. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about that love language of, of saying how you feel. And I think that this can be one of the hardest love languages for adults. Um, for adults to communicate with other adults or with their children? With other adults, I think. With, with kids, it's a little bit easier for us to profess our love and to talk about the ways that we adore them. But with other adults and as even maybe as our kids get older and get to be teenagers, I don't know. Have you seen that as your kids have gotten older, that it's a little bit harder or a little bit less automatic to talk in loving ways towards them? Yes, I do. I mean, I think in my family, um, with my younger daughter in particular, we it's very habitual for us to say, I love you when we say goodnight to each other at the end of the day or when we part when I leave her in the morning and we, she says, I love you. And I say, I love you. And I I don't think that it is necessarily just a reflex, but it's just, we have always made it part of our mode of interaction that that sort of transition time is a way to just communicate how we feel about each other. And there have definitely been times recently when my daughter was mad at me and she was really grumpy. And yet when she said goodnight to me at the end of the evening and she said, sleep well, I love you. I really didn't think it was a habit. I really think it was her way of using um, that routine as a way to kind of apologize for the fact that she'd been um, difficult (laughs) and sort of circle back. So even if, you know, I don't, I don't think that you have to come up with all these, that parents need to feel that they have to feel pressure to come up with a new and better, more articulate way to express their love in words every time. And I think that some of the same phrases, whether it's, I love you or, um, pet names that you have for each other or, um, just familiar interactions have the same power to kids that they just feel like, Oh, you know, yep. This is how I talk to my mom. Um, yeah. And our family, we say if we're frustrated with each other after the frustration sort of calms down a little bit, we'll say to each other, sometimes we get frustrated with each other, but we still love mm-hmm, each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that for me is really important because I'm communicating to my kids that yes, I got upset with you. Yes. I got angry with you but I still love you. And it might seem obvious to adults, but our kids, especially when they're young, they think in very black or white. So if you ever have had a kid that says, oh, why do you hate me? Or things like that, it could be because they have this black or white thinking still. And when you're angry with them, they automatically think you don't like them or you don't love them. And it's hard for them to see you being angry and still see you as a loving person to see that simultaneously. So 
I think that that's my intent behind that expression mm-hmm. that sometimes we get angry with each other. Or sometimes we get frustrated with each other, but we still love each other. It's a way of not necessarily apologizing for my feelings because I don't think that we always have to apologize right. when we get right. angry, but at acknowledging, yes, I got angry and yes, I still yes. love you. Like we're still good. Kind of like that peace mm-hmm. offering. Yeah, yeah no, I know. I, and you mentioned teenagers and I, I think that it certainly gets more difficult because you're not necessarily hearing loving words as much from your teenager anymore, but they also, um, they're very sensitive to what seems sappy, right? Like they'll roll their eyes if you say something to them that you would felt may have felt comfortable saying to your younger child sometimes. Um, but even when it seems like they're not loving you in the moment or they're annoyed with you or they don't, you don't think they really want to be with you. They still really do. <laughs> and you just have to remind yourself of that. Even though, even if it's harder for them to tell you as they get older, they, they still want you around. They still love you. They still care what you think. And even if they're rolling their eyes, they actually probably do kind of secretly mm-hmm. like it. So let's talk about the fourth love language, which is acts of service. Okay. So acts of service, um, that there are certain kids who particularly enjoy um, a thoughtful gesture, that, something that you go out of your way to do that just seems just really nice and something that um, you're choosing to do because you know it makes them happy. And I think that a lot of parents struggle with this notion because we feel like our kids servants a lot of the time anyway, right? That we're constantly in positions where we could be doing things for them. And I know that that you feel strongly that we want to be raising our kids to be independent, capable individuals, and that it's a trap to continue to do things for them. So I think that with this love language of acts of service, it's really more a question of sort of small, thoughtful gestures. Like it's cold and I'm going to take your sweatshirt and I'm going to stick it in the dryer for 10 minutes so that when you put it on, it's warm. Um, I make heart-shaped pancakes for my daughter for breakfast on most mornings. So little small things that show your child that Yes, even though you know that they are an increasingly big kid who can do things for themselves, that um, you want to make their life a little bit easier sometimes because you love them. Yes. And there's a a famous Maria Montessori quote that says, never do for a child what he or she can do for themselves. And I, I think it's a great quote, but I also don't abide by it a hundred percent of the time, or even close to a hundred percent of the time, because I think that there are things that my kids can do that are still hard for them to do. Like my daughter has some shoes that are tricky for her to put on. Like she can put them on, but it's a struggle. And if she's extra tired, she might need a helping hand. And I'm happy to say, okay, you put one on and I'll put one on and try to meet in the middle. I don't think just because a child can do all these things themselves means that we are sort of like, off the hook, like, all right, like that's no longer part of my responsibility. Like, I think we can still step in and do things for our kids. And I don't think we're doing a disservice to them. I would agree. I would agree. And, and, and certainly helping a child learn how to do a particular skill that's tougher for them to master and sort of being patient with your child as they're learning how to do something and not getting frustrated is another act of service. 
right? My 14-year-old daughter literally is just learning how to swallow a pill. She's had a really hard time with it over the years. And just last night, she swallowed a pretty big ibuprofen <laughs> um, by herself. Oh, and I was, so, I was so happy for her. And it really, um, I can't tell you how many times we've just sort of talked through different strategies and different ways that she could do it and make it easier for her. And we don't need to analyze my daughter's swallowing technique, but the patience of helping her learn how to do it herself. And that's something I can't do for her, right? I can't, the only thing I can do is say, okay, we'll buy you the chewable pills or we'll, you can still take the liquid. <laughs> I can't swallow it for her, but sticking with her and not getting frustrated and making her feel that a kid your age should be able to do this by herself by now um, was an act right. of service to That's her. tricky. It is because I think it, I mean, she obviously had anxiety around swallowing the pill. Like it was just, it made her anxious. The idea of this big mm -hmm. thing going down mm -hmm. her throat, understandably. And if you would have said like, just do it, you should be, you're old enough to do it. Or if you would have approached it like that, it would have just added to the anxiety. And I think that sometimes that's our inclination as parents is to just have these expectations and to just kind of preach them at our kids and to not realize that sometimes we're doing more harm than good. Right. No, I mean, there it doesn't matter really if most kids can do something at a particular age. If your kid can't, then you just have to meet her where she is and, and, and not make her feel ashamed that she's not um, on par with everybody else. Yes, I completely agree with that. So the fifth love language is the love language of wanting to spend time together. Right. Um, uh, Dr. Chapman calls it quality time. Um, and, and, and these kids are the ones who will constantly say, come here, I got to show you something, you know, look at me, do a cartwheel. They, they, they are trying to get our attention and want to show us things. And I think that is often, um, a sign that they really want to feel like they have our undivided attention. And particularly now when we, have electronic devices that are pinging at us and calling to us all the time that kids are aware of the fact that our our attention is divided more than it should be and they really want us to put our phone down and not do anything else other than give them even if it's two minutes or five minutes of um, undivided attention yes I want to see what you you know I want I, I want to see the feedback your teacher gave you, or I want to see you do a, a, a somersault or whatever it is that our kid wants to, to show us. As you've been a full-time working mom, your entire parenthood. So do you think that this is tricky for full-time working parents to be able to fit in this quality time? Sure. It is tricky. I mean, we have, you know, we have less total number of hours to be together, but I think that my strategy, honestly, in Life in general has just been to get up a little earlier. <laughs> there aren't that many problems that I haven't been able to solve by getting up earlier. That um, if I have give myself a little extra time in the morning to do everything that I need to do for myself, for example, when by the time my kids are awake, I can focus more on being there for them in the way that they need me. Obviously, I'm not doing everything for them, but um, I think as a working parent, you can be strategic in terms of carving out the time that you need to do your own stuff so that you're not trying to do everything at once. 
Right. And sometimes it's quality over quantity when it comes to time. It's, it's hard to put your phone away and to just focus on being with your kids. But if you don't have hours and hours every day to do it, making those small windows of time can be really impactful. I mean, I've heard people talk about the fact that if you have 10 great minutes with your kid once a day, that's, that's powerful, right? They'll, they'll remember what you did in those 10 minutes rather than two hours of, you know, being running back and forth in, in, in the same home and not really paying attention to what the other person is doing and parallel playing. Um, if you can say, well, you know, let's, what would you, you know, I have, I have 10 minutes. What should we, you know, what do you want to do together? Just you and me right now. And, and that's meaningful. Right. Or just even stopping and looking them in the eye at the end yeah. of the day and asking them how their day was. And just little bits of connection can go so far. And I don't think we need to put pressure on ourselves to be there or be present with them all the time. My older daughter and I used to have go out for Chinese food every Friday night, the two of us. And this was I have a blended family and I, um, got remarried when she was 10 years old. So she had a new stepfather and we had a routine that we had dinner together once a week, just the two of us. And it really meant a lot to her. Um, she didn't have to share me with him anymore on that one night. And it, um, it, it, we did it for many years and it, it made a big difference for her, I think. Oh, I love that. And it's just those little, little bits of time that we prioritize, I think can be really powerful. So looking at all these love languages, it makes me kind of wonder if anyone's out there is listening, thinking I need to figure out my kids' love languages, like put this on my list of a million things that I have to do, figure out their love language, make sure that I'm catering to their love language. Do you think that this is something that needs to be done really intentionally, or are we maybe already doing some of this? I don't think it has to be on your to-do list. I think it's, um, I think that having it in the back of your mind can just help you have some aha moments in your everyday life that perhaps you might not ordinarily have had. Um, and if you just sort of notice patterns in the way your child is acting, just like we're always looking for patterns and various things, like we're, if you're trying to figure out I don't know why your why your kid is itching his eyes. I mean, there were a lot of what parents do are sort of trying to piece together clues that tell us certain things about our children. Um, and I think that this is just a different lens through which to see your child's behavior. And for some people, it will be very obvious. And they're like, oh my goodness, that's what they're trying to, that's what he's trying to tell me. And for other parents, it it may not resonate as much and that's okay. I, I, I can't really pinpoint my older daughter's love language as clearly as I can my younger daughters and that's okay. Yeah. And I think one of the powerful things that can come from this is this idea that we can really parent each child differently. And actually we sometimes need to parent each child differently in order to meet their definitely, needs. Definitely. definitely. And I think that that's true in so many ways, uh, you know, beyond, love languages and that we don't need to treat our kids equally. We just need to, um, treat them fairly, you know, that, that not fairly, but that we need to give each child what he or she needs at that time. 
Right. Because we can spend a lot of time and energy trying to be fair and trying to be equitable. And no matter how much we try to do that, the way that our children perceive that fairness and equality is never going to be fair and equal. So instead of trying to spend our time and energy being fair and equal, if we just spend our our time and energy trying to meet the needs of our children individually, I think we'll probably get a lot farther. Definitely. Well, this has been great chatting today, Diane. Thank you so much for for having me. This has been really fun. It flew, time flew by. Yeah. So I know, so parents magazine, you can get on the newsstands, you can get it online. You have a Facebook group too, right? We do. We have, um, a parents, um, in real life Facebook page. It's actually a, 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 we have a regular Facebook page on, um, parents Facebook, but we have, um, a special group called parents IRL and you have to request to join. Um, but we would love to have you. We um, are happy to have anyone who just confirms for us that they are actually a parent of young children. Um, and it's really a community where there's a lot more uh, interaction, not only with each other, but also the editors of the magazine. We um, go on to the IRL page and talk about articles that we're working on and want feedback from other moms and dads about the issues that they're struggling with so that we can cover the issues that they care about. Great. All right. Well, I'll put those links in the show notes and I'll put the link to this article in the show notes too. Excellent. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much, Diane. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been episode 167. If you want the links to the things that we talked about today, or you want to learn more about parents and Diane, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 167, and you can get the links there. Now, if you want to stay in touch with Simple Families, go to simplefamilies.com and leave your email address in the top. The email list is by far the best way to stay in touch with what's going on on the blog, on the podcast, in the community, you name it. I appreciate you being a part of Simple Families and I will talk to you soon. Have a good one.